Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on what is a bright spring morning here in the capital is Neil Felton. Neil is the CEO at FESPA, a global federation of national associations for the screen, digital and textile printing communities. Uh, Neil, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the show. Thank you very much, Scott. Looking forward to it. It's a real pleasure having you with us, Neil. Um, I think a good place to start would be by addressing the elephant in the room, and that's the fact that we are recording this podcast in late May 2021, and we are therefore still in the grip of the global COVID-19 pandemic and have been for the best part of the last 14 months. Um, So with that in mind, to what extent has all of this affected you and affected your organisation? Well, it's affected our organisation and everyone in the events industry quite significantly. Uh, We were due to run a show back in March 2020 in Madrid, uh, one of our European shows and many other shows since then. And we, of course, had to cancel and postpone a variety of our events. So it has affected us hugely. Um, What I would say with regards to you said we're in the grip of the pandemic, I think actually we're coming out the other side of it very strongly right now. So although 2020 and the beginning of 2021 was very difficult, we're now starting to see real opportunity moving into the second half of the year. Mm. I suppose, in a sense, we're still in the grip of those social restrictions, but that grip is very much loosening, isn't it? And it's positive that we are starting to see some green shoots now with roadmaps out of lockdown, with the economy beginning to reopen again, as you say. Um, Although, of course, we are starting to see that, Do you think that the events industry in particular is going to be essentially changed forever in the way that it operates and the way it does business as a result of what's happened? I think the events industry is certainly going to be changed, but I wouldn't say it's going to be fundamentally changed. What what has happened is is two things. First and foremost, we've been able to use online ways in which we can engage with our communities that we represent. Uh, But the second is that actually what's become really clear is that people need face-to-face. So the way in which people drive revenue from events um, is still very important, particularly to all of our clients. And that although online is um, helped a certain way in the last uh, 12 to 15 months, it hasn't actually replaced the real life of seeing a product, uh, you know, touching it, speaking to the uh, people who make the products, uh, understanding what their competitors are like. So events, and focused events which are representing their community well will actually grow and become stronger as the the years go on, in my personal opinion. It is important to remember, isn't it, that that online exposure in the industry isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. I think that's very, very right. And even though we are recognising that, I think certainly working practices are going to be something that will change at least in the immediate term after the pandemic because where people have had to be deployed to work remotely that's something across industry as a whole that i think may well persist for quite a long time is that something you agree with 
whether I think that there will be an impact without question that will persist further, further, further on. You know, we have a show which is happening in October, and uh, if you were to run it now, it couldn't happen. But I mm. think that every sign is um, that uh, with the way that the European governments are now working closer together with the green certificate and a, a variety of ways to do that, I think we will learn a lot from this pandemic about how to deal with any future challenges such as COVID. So. I think it's a learning process. I think it's actually been quite a uh, quite a wake up call, but actually in very much a good way. And the way you describe the pandemic there is a learning process. Would you say that you've mm. learned anything major from your experience over the last fourteen months? Oh, so much. I mean, I don't. Do, I mean, the one thing I always knew, but I think it solidified my thinking, is that the the strength of the team is really important. And uh, to be surrounded by talented, young, energetic uh, people in my business has really enabled us to get through this really strongly. Uh, and also as well to realize what we're good at. You know, we, we had a chance to actually look at what we do strategically and uh, make sure that things are done uh, in a more uh, a fresh, a blank sheet of paper in some ways and given us the chance to reshape our business moving forward. So I think that you'll find a lot of businesses who have got through this very difficult period will find themselves coming out of it much stronger with a clearer strategic focus and a clearer way in which they can do business. Mm. Certainly resilience is something that they'll come out of it with a lot more of, isn't there? Especially so considering the struggle that they've had to um, undergo uh, throughout the last 14 months. And um, just thinking about that as well, um, the impact of the pandemic on mental health and well-being is something that's been incredibly well amplified and rightfully so. Now, the online side of things, as we've already talked about, hasn't replaced face-to-face events. With face-to-face events coming back now and there being a healthy events industry post-pandemic, do you think that could play a huge role in essentially combating that sort of impending mental health crisis that might be coming about? Well, I think it's very clear from what our clients are telling us and what our community is telling us that um, that face-to-face uh, is is very important. And I suppose it's part of the human condition um, that we, uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, uh, as human beings, it's very important to engage with each other. Now, you can, of course, do things by Zoom or Team or those things, but it doesn't actually embed the experience as much as it possibly can do. And I think what we need to be very clear of with regard to mental health is that we need to be in communication with people and the best form of communication is normally always face-to-face and actually speaking to people uh, and uh, you know spending real time with them having shared experiences and I think that's one of the challenges with regard to um, uh, using the internet all the time or using a team and zooms all the time is that it doesn't give you that level of connection and that's why I welcome uh, in months to come that we will be having more and more of that and the events industry, quite clearly, and as a member of the board of the AO, it's a very important part, uh, has a very important role to play uh, with regard to helping uh, that process. And I suppose that lack of face-to-face connection, particularly with colleagues as well during this time, has made it quite difficult for leaders to keep tabs on people's sort of mental health and well-being as well. Because whereas you may be in the same office as somebody and it's easy to sort of understand just by looking at them what kind of mood they're in, how they're feeling, the same nuances don't necessarily project over a Zoom call or a Teams meeting, do they? So 
leading from a distance means that business leaders have had to essentially adapt their leadership styles over the last 14 months? Without question, uh, you've had to. I mean, you've had to realise how to how to run a meeting online is, is a whole new skill and how you actually get a level of engagement, which is much easier when it's face-to-face. But I think there's positives on both sides. I think that uh, we, we did a staff survey recently with regard to meeting, and they were saying that actually they were a lot more time efficient with regard to meetings. Uh, it was a lot more punctual. Uh, it, it got more actions out of it. Um, if in doubt, you could record the meeting and go back to it to address certain points and talk about a variety of things. So there are benefits in which you can actually use uh, these virtual platforms to your benefit. But then on the flip side, what we have missed is the, is the way in which we can come up with new ideas, interact with one another from a face-to-face perspective. So I think there are positives on both sides. The key moving forward is how you work in a hybrid environment and how you get the best of virtual meetings, but also face-to-face as well. And something that we have seen over the last few months here at the Leaders' Council especially is that a lot of business executives have been very much in survival mode over the course of the last year. And that has led to not just, of course, an awful amount of sort of, I suppose, stress, but also CEO burnout. And we've been talking an awful lot about the impacts of that and how it can be avoided um, in various um, events online. Now, have you found ways yourself of maybe taking a step back from the hectic world of running FESPA when you've needed to and you've been able to sort of switch off personally as and when required? Um, I suppose I've been quite lucky. I mean, uh, in some ways, I was uh, I was caught out visiting my parents in uh, Dubai in, in December and uh, we couldn't get back that we wanted to. So I've had a, a slightly different experience. But I think you can be energized by the team. And mm. luckily, I'm, I'm surrounded by a team who have pushed through and come up with a whole variety of new products and ways in which we can get through this. And actually, it's been uh, the exhibition organizers. I mean, not many people understand the exhibition organizing business, but we actually thrive off um, quite a lot of pressure in the short spaces of time. And what it's meant is that we've just had to extend that pressure over a longer period of time. And I think in, in general that these challenges have been met with by both myself and the team uh, quite positively. Though, of course, at the very beginning, I think most business leaders would have said it's a real challenge to work out uh, how we work with furlough, what do we do with regard to our products, what do we do with regard to insurance. You know, there was a whole range of questions which none of us really knew all the answers for. And for that, I go back to one thing which is central to what FESPA is and the Association of Exhibition Organisers, which I'm also a member of, is that by finding out from other people who are going through these challenges is really important. And that helped us get through the Association of Exhibition Organisers and our community of people that work in our industry, the printing industry, have really helped us get through this by working together. So I would say that's another big positive which comes out of COVID is that uh, the communities have actually got tighter, coalesced around a uh, common problem and found common solutions. I think that collaboration is something that we've seen on an unprecedented scale. We've seen so many industry competitors coming together. I mean, especially when it comes to um, manufacturing a working vaccine as well. I mean, that's the epitome of that that we've seen over the course of the uh, the last year or so. And just for any of those younger viewers that may be tuning into the podcast today and are of that sort of entrepreneurial stock, I suppose, 
if you're thinking of starting a business, one of the best things that you can do is go and network, speak to people who have more experience, who are well-versed in the industry, talk to people because as a business leader, it's important to remember that you're not alone. You have other people within the industry, there are industry bodies, there are networking uh, groups. And that's one of the best things that you can do, isn't it? Going and seeking that advice out and looking for it. Without question. I mean, uh, we represent, if you think Chester is quite strange, it represents two separate areas. Firstly, we're, uh, we're a federation. We have 37 national associations around the world um, and we represent um, 16,000 printers. Um, so that's on the one side. And on the other side, we are a commercial organization which run events, um, particularly around the exhibition space. And I think that, that both of these do is they lead you to one conclusion. And the conclusion is it's about talking to your market, talking to people and understanding, whether it be face-to-face on the commercial side or whether it be with your associations and your stakeholders on the federation side. By doing that and speaking to your market, understanding your market, you are much more likely to come up with the right products, which can be both profitable and rewarding. I think communication is something incredible that's come out of this pandemic and the emphasis on that. And hopefully that is something that we continue to harness in the world of industry going forward from here. And um, talking about going forward from here in a little bit more detail, Neil, just before we wrap things up on the show, because I am conscious that we're starting to run short of time. Um, there is now hopefully a clear route out of this main phase of the uh, the pandemic and out of social restrictions. And as we see the economy beginning to open up again in full, um, what is it that you're hoping for FESPA to achieve over the course of this next 12 months? And indeed, where do you see yourselves being this time next year? Uh, we expect that we'll be bouncing back to pre-pandemic levels. Um, the, the demand from our stakeholders out there is that they are desperately in need of um, the face-to-face events that we run, uh, they want to speak to their community, they want to speak to their customers, and FESPA is a, a conduit to that. So we actually see that we will be bouncing back to the levels we were beforehand, and in fact, I think it should be stronger. And I, I don't think that's uh, too much to say on the basis that basically people have been waiting for almost 18 months now to see what the new products are, to speak to people, to re-energize an industry. And uh, there is a, a large amount of latent demand for uh, face-to-face events, particularly in our sector. And we see uh, uh, our strategic plan is to seize, grow and to invest in our market. And I certainly wish Vesper all of the luck in the world in making that vision become a reality and helping that market grow again and recover strongly. Um, I have to say, Neil, um, it's been a real pleasure welcoming you onto the show today and a real eye opener uh, from my perspective as to what's been going on within the sectors that you work in. And I think as we start to see the picture become clearer over the coming months as well, it will be wonderful to perhaps welcome you back onto the show just to see exactly what has changed. I would I would love to. And I'd also like to say that there are many people out there right now who've gone through difficult times with regard to uh, losing jobs through the pandemic and a whole range of things. I would stress, I would urge them that the events industry is going to come back strong. We need young, energetic, intelligent and motivated people to come into this industry and we would welcome them with open arms. Uh, FESPA itself, we will be looking to recruit in the next month or so as uh, the business starts to build back. So, um, if there is any young entrepreneur out there wanting to get into a market which is fascinating, uh, to travel the world, to see 
incredible activity happening and real business happening right in front of your eyes, then the event and the exhibition space is the place to be. Mm. Exactly right. To those young entrepreneurs out there, please do not lose hope despite the economic situation, because as Neil put very well there, there are going to be so many opportunities out there, especially within the events industry. Um, Thank you once again, Neil. Please do take care and stay safe with all still going on as well, just because we're still not quite out of the woods yet, but we're very, very nearly there. Great stuff. Thanks, Scott. It's a pleasure speaking to you. It was wonderful to welcome Neil Felton, CEO at Vespa, onto the programme today. And coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by former England cricket captain and director of the England and Wales Cricket Board, Sir Andrew Strauss. Now, um, during his playing days, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. He'll be joining us on the show next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Trescothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Trescothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, But I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 years Of of age I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think 
in those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role. You know, and just in terms of... Because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international cricket. And in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know... uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and and, and you've got (laughs) other places to be, so (laughs) we can't do that, but... If I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was Mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, I think it was the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, (laughs) like just white of a sheet, grey, he looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. Quite. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point now because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly 
It was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived as Hold a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch. Uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, 
being looked up to, what would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself... Um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you, mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in twenty fifteen, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach. Was was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Holyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was... Firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... In fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky... Uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it, very different challenge because you are so f so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know you, but when watching that World Cup final again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become 
avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of you know emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so numbers yeah i mean it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other. Because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think if the, if the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, 
Uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events there, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be. Yeah, so the I mean, we've got a couple of big ones. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing red uh, wearing red so w- w- what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot um, of them wear <laughs> red trousers <laughs> anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely yeah. you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. right? And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket um, but more importantly um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day one game a day over a six-week period broadcasters will pay money for that and therefore what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills if you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I i I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gonna be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. 
This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.